All right, I think we're going to get started in the interest of time. People will come in late, well, catch up as we go. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rabbi Ezra Fraser. I teach Tanakh, and I'm studying for a doctorate in Tanakh here at YU. And the topic we're going to be dealing with today is really a fundamental one in the relationship between Pshad and Dresh. Virtually all of the serious Mephorshim that we would study, the source sheets are by the door, virtually any of the serious Mephorshim that we would Fine, you know, Rashi, Ramban, Ibn Ezra, Radaf when it comes to Tanakh, Tanakh especially. Virtually any of these Mephorshim recognize the distinction between the Pshat level and the Drash level, as you say there. Uh, recognize the distinction between the Pshat and Drash level when it comes to narrative sections of the Chumash or of the Navi. And so each of them might and to understand exactly what is Pshat as opposed to Drash somewhat differently. They might have different ratios, so that Rashi has a very large amount of Drash, someone like Ibn Ezra has less of it. But the basic idea that there are multiple levels of interpretation, there is a simple level of, in which the text can be interpreted differently than the way that Chazal interpreted it, is pretty much universally agreed among serious commentators. However, when we approach halachic sections, you know, when we approach Parshat Mishpatim, or most of Sefer Vayikra, the sheets right there, when we approach any later part of, any legal part of the Chumash, now we have a bit of a dilemma. Because on the one hand, there's sheets by the door, on the one hand, there's the fact that this is a halachic section. It's telling us how to conduct ourselves, and the interpretations that are going to be legally binding are going to be the ones that Chazal gives, that are in the Gemara and Torah Shabbal Peh. So from that perspective, one could very legitimately say, what's the point of having something called Shuto Shel Mikra in a section like that? If the point of Mishpatim is to tell me how to behave, and the only way I'm actually allowed to behave is the way that Chazal interpret Mishpatim, so what's the point in trying to read Mishpatim without Chazal? I understand in a story, if I want to read a story about Avram Avinu, there could be one message the simple meaning of the text gives, and a second message, or many additional messages that I can get by reading, you know, the Midrash says. But when it comes to a legal section, what, what would be the point, what significance is there to a, you know, Pharisaic, rabbinic Jew who accepts the Talmud as binding, what point is there in his mind, the sheets are over there, from... What point is there to, to the Pshat level of the text? At the same time, however, I could look at it the other way and say, look, if I'm any of the Mephorshim we mentioned before, and I know when I read a text that I first ask myself, what does the text itself mean? What's the simple, straightforward way to interpret it? And then I see Drash as an additional level of meaning. So... How, do you really expect me to just shut down my mind when I read Mishpatim? When I see the Pasuk in Mishpatim saying something which doesn't seem to be what Chazal take it to mean, you know, the, the simple interpretation of the words seems different than the halakhically binding interpretation of Chazal, do you expect me to just ignore that? And so this posed a very major dilemma for the Rishonim. In order to focus ourselves a bit, even our more narrow focus could easily be one or several books, and so we're still going to be hard-pressed to cover it in the time allotted. We're going to limit ourselves to Rashbam and Ibn Ezra. I chose them because they're two Mephorshim 
both of whom focus on Shat as opposed to Drash in their interpretation of narrative events. As we mentioned before, someone like Rashi at times will also say, you know, the Pshuto Shlomikra is different than what Chazal said, but Ramban and Ibn Azar particularly make an effort to have a clear distinction between Prat and Drash and to basically focus on Prat in their commentaries. And so for them, it's going to be a particularly difficult challenge when they get to a section like Mishpatim, whereas someone like Rashi, if Rashi is basically going to quote Gemara's to interpret Mishpatim, that's not going to shock us, since he does a lot of that even in narrative sections. And just to understand what a sensitive topic we're dealing with, I wanted to begin with some famous words that the Mahar Shal, Rabbi Shlomo Luria, wrote about Ibn Ezra, to show how if you you know, cross the cross Chazal in these matters, you can get people very angry at you. So the Maharshal in his introduction to Yam Shal Shlomo writes the following about Ibn Ezra, right at the start of the source sheet. Hachacham Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra, Asher lo haya ba'al Talmuda. Ibn Ezra, he didn't really know so much Gemara. Rov binyano perushua derech ha-tchuna v'ha-tivi v'kabalat tzitzonot. His commentary is filled with a lot of, you know, foreign alien disciplines to the Torah, meaning as opposed to Chazal, even Ezra had the nerve to say a lot of not so nice things about other rabbinic scholars, Gaonim, Tanaim, Amoraim. So, Even Ezra, he does deserve some respect. He was a big scholar. And the space from the Gemara, it's never nice to go after the lion after the lion died. Since even as it was dead, we shouldn't be taking shots at him. So whenever someone has an intro like that, you know, so-and-so really does deserve a lot of respect, and really it's not so nice to trash him, so what's going to come next? <laughs> You're going to get trashed, right? <laughs> so really, we shouldn't be too harsh, but you should know, that certainly, you should, God forbid, you should never reach any halakhic conclusions based on what it says in Ibn Ezra al-Torah. That was not his forte. Lola Ezra, Lola Hatir, I don't pass out of Ibn Ezra al-Torah. He also pamim neged halacha. His commentary has some things in it that are against halacha. I feel neged chachmi ha-mishnah, neged amorei ha-talmud, belim ispar. Sometimes even against the Tanayim, certainly lots of things against the Amoraim. Be'emet shamati omrim alav, shakafaya machriz ve'emodiyel ha-rabim, I heard about him that he said he doesn't want to be no safe panim. He doesn't want to show favor in the eyes of Mephorshim. I mean, he doesn't want to give anyone a free pass just because they were a big rabbi. If he thinks that what Chazal said is wrong, he'll say it's wrong. If he thinks what Narasadegon said is wrong, he'll say it's wrong. There's no free pass because your name has you know, Ga'on appended to it. He'll explain things... <laughs> Ignoring tradition simply based on what his mind thinks. Because you see, sometimes he pulls this dirty trick where he'll say, So he's trying to sound from, he says, Of course I believe in the Kabbalah. Kabbalah here is not mysticism, it means the tradition. Of course I believe in the tradition, but if not for the tradition, I would have said such and such. So he's finding a way to sneak in a parish that's against Chazal. He's giving his, you know, friendly disclaimer, if not for the tradition, so he, he's covered all his bases. You can't call him a heretic, as he said, I'm only saying this if not for the tradition, Lulea Kabbalah. But in fact, he's slipping in all these anti-Rabbinic commentaries. 
In case you didn't get the message yet, I don't think he's right. <laughs> I think, you know, he must be paying for this, you know, somewhere very low and warm. He's, his parish emboldened all kinds of heretics to say, ah, Ibn Ezra was a big rabbi, and his interpretations are against Chazal, so we're free to say whatever we want. And this is true. There were certain Karaites who claimed that Ibn Ezra was a Talmud of Yefet the Karaite. Yefet was a famous Karaite commentator whom Ibn Ezra sometimes quotes. So the Karaites said, yeah, he quoted Yefet because Yefet was his Rebbe. And in fact, based on when Yefet died and Ibn Ezra was born, Yefet was clearly not his Rebbe. They never met each other, never saw each other. But it is true. Marshall's correct about that. The fact that Ibn Ezra offers Prat commentaries, sometimes even Prat commentaries quoted from Karaites, did lead people to associate him with the Karaites at times. And so recently, I, I don't normally read blogs, I have better things to do with my time, but I was looking for the schedule for this conference, so I did a Google search for, you know, Tanakh, Yu, Yomi Yun, and I found the schedule posted on the Yuhurim blog, and people can add comments. So eventually, a lot of the comments, well, some of them I'll spare you, but the more intelligent ones revolves around the question of, there are going to be some sessions talking about Ibn Ezra. Did Ibn Ezra quote Karaites, and did he agree with them? And some people said, no, we don't think he could ever agree with them, because, you know, he couldn't. And other people said, but he quotes them, he does agree with them, and so you have to read what he says. And this became such a big deal, the editor of the blog had to start a separate thread just to discuss Ibn Ezra and the Karaites. Because people were, they got 56 comments, people going back and forth. Did he like the Karaites? Did he not like the Karaites? So the truth is, Ibn Ezra, when he disagrees with the Karaites, and we'll see some cases like this today, he's not afraid to say quite clearly what he thinks of them. But if they had a good point, he didn't hesitate to quote it. He didn't reject it simply because it came from a Karaite. And so Marshall says, in doing that, in quoting all these proud interpretations, Ibn Ezra act, you know, did not act prudently because he emboldened heretics. So this is... Marshall's criticism of Ibn Ezra. And I think at times we tend to have this perception. I know, you know I studied in Yeshiva both in Israel and here in Wadiyo. And the world of Fatim Midrash, oftentimes Ibn Ezra has seen it. Yes, he's a Rishon, but he's not a from Rishon. There's <laughs> an angel who teaches Tanakh here. He likes to tell the story of how he was once studying for a Tanakh exam in the Wadiyo based Medrash. And he. <coughs> is reading something, and he, he senses that someone near him is a bit of a hawker who's going to try and make trouble. So he decides he wants to debate the guy a bit. So he reads something that Ibn Ezra said is very controversial, says the Ibn Ezra's name softly, and the idea loudly. And sure enough, the guy at the table, next table over who hears this idea jumps up, who said that? So the angel says, well, the Ibn Ezra said it. So the guy says, Shh. at least it wasn't one of the Frumrishan. <laughs> the angel continues studying. He's about to quote now an idea he heard from Rabbi Karmi, who also teaches here, which was different than the Ibn Ezra's view. And so he says, you know, very loudly again to bait this guy. But Rabbi Karmi said he thinks the Ibn Ezra is wrong and he thinks, you know, something different. So the same guy pops up. Who does Rabbi Karmi think he has to argue with the Rishon? <laughs> <laughs> so this, you know, controversy about the Ibn Ezra has been well documented. But what I want to show today is that. When it comes to halakha, the marshal is barking up the wrong tree. It may be true that Ibn Ezra, in general, is a pshat commentary where he's not afraid to reject people and even reject them harshly. 
when it comes to halacha, Ibn Ezra is going to be the very devout, pious one, and Rashbam is going to be the one whom Rashbam should have been attacking. And we're going to first read statements by Rashbam and Ibn Ezra about their fundamental approach to, approaches towards Prat sections of the Torah, and then we're going to look at some examples of each. Let's start with their methodological statements. The Rashbam states at the beginning of the Torah, we should all know either Rashbam firmly believes that whatever Chazal say is true. I'm going to skip a line in the interest of time. But you should know these halachot and drashot, which I just said are true, because Chazal said them, they're derived from extra words, extra letters, or put differently, they are not the simple meaning of the text. The Rashbam distinguishes here between the simple level of Trutoshal Mikra and things that can be derived from allusions in that text of the Trutoshal Mikra. So Rashbam is telling us from the get-go, at the beginning of Breshit, there's going to be a firm distinction in this commentary between Prat and Dresh. How does this apply to Halakha? <coughs> so here, the more controversial part of the Rashbam, the beginning of Mishpatim, Rashbam tells us, you should all know, wise people, listen up. As you're going to read my commentary in Mishpatim, you're going to see some stuff that's going to shock you. Well, you want to know why? I'm not here to read about halacha, even though that's ikar. The question when he says ikar, does he simply mean that's the most important thing? Because tafas, the way we live our lives, is according to halacha, as Chazal understood it. And so whatever I'm reading in my parish in Mishpatim, don't try it at home. Or is it even saying, in terms of learning, it's, more important to first learn Mishpatim for the Halacha, which means learning it with Chazal, and then if you have extra time, also read my commentary. It's not clear with Ikar, does he mean more important, because Tachlis, that's what we do, or does he mean a more important discipline of study? But either way, I already told you in Breshit that that layer of Halacha, which is the Ikar, is derived from extra words, extra letters, as I told you in Breshit, what we just read before. If you really want to learn halacha mishpatim, go read Rashi, my grandfather. I don't need to write a commentary for that. My commentary on mishpatim is not going to give you halacha because you have Rashi for that. My commentary will give you the simple shutal shalmikra according to Derech Eretz. This is a very loaded term. If you do a word search for this term throughout Rashbam's commentary, you will find used it for a whole range of things. I'm going to translate it now the way I think is best. This sort of general common sense awareness of how the world works. That includes science at times. Science will tell you, and Shir Hayam, he tries to explain how it may have functioned in the form of a tidal wave. Start discussing a bit how science works there. Sometimes we use it simply for colloquial speech. The angels on Yaakov's ladder, Olim v'yordimbo, he thinks that phrase is a normal colloquial way to, to refer to how angels operate. And so the various midrashim there are, but the deeper meaning of the angels going up and down, he says is not the pshat there. Because according to Derech Haetz, it's simply a way of speaking. And so both colloquial speech, science, societal and social norms sometimes, all these things are included under Derech Haetz. Now, what Derech Eretz is clearly not, is it's not 
Chazal. So Rishbam is telling you right here, I'm going to explain halachot in Mishpatim against the way that these halachot are interpreted by Chazal, and therefore against the way that you should actually practice them. He reminds you again, but remember halachot ikar. Don't paskin out of my commentary, but what I'm going to be doing is giving you the Pshutah Shlomekra of these Pesukim. So that's Rishbam's methodology. We'll see examples shortly. How about Ibn Ezra's methodology? Here Ibn Ezra wrote one whole series of commentaries on the Torah, which is the short series. In any standard Mikro these are the parishim you'll have, with the exception of Shemot. And Shemot is from round two. Ibn Ezra got very sick and made a letter that if he recovered, he would reinterpret the whole Torah. He wrote a new series, the Aroch series, which includes the parish printed in most Mikro like this one in Shemot. In Torah Chaim, they did a nice job of printing both Pirushim, Chatzar and Aroch of Shmaz, Free Ben Ezra. And in that longer series, we also we have fra- we have the whole commentary on Shmaz. We have fragments of that commentary on Breshit printed as the Shita Acharet. So that's why I have, I have two introductions here: introduction to round Ibn Ezra round one, and introduction to Ibn Ezra round two. And both times in his introduction, he writes it in poetry, so the language is a little hard, and he explains. What are the different approaches to interpret Chumash that are out there? Goes through a few he doesn't like and concludes with his own method. And what is his method? So, let's start with the regular commentary, meaning the short commentary. This is the one he wrote first. The word Hadrash Derechaprat Inanasara. Drash, which earlier he praised Chazal, but that which Chazal did of Drash, that cannot push away Pshat. There are different levels of interpretation. So drash is important and pshat is important. Rak, the Torah of Mishpatim of the Chukim, when it comes to halacha, we find two ta'amim, ta'amim in Ibn Ezra's commentary means inganim or perushim, not reasons. It does not, ta'amim, it does not mean taste, this does not mean ta'amim in the sense that we usually translate it as conceptual rationales. This is simply... You could usually substitute, plug in the word inyan or perush when you say see time in Ibn Ezra. There are, if we find two interpretations, two perushim to a pasuk, and one, one perush is like the ma'atikim, which is chazal, hataka, is an Arabism. The Arab word nakal means both to copy something and to be moseret. And so, Arabic speakers like Ibn Ezra will use the Hatakar, the Ma'atikim, for people who gave us the Mesorah. So the Chazal, they, if they support one of these two possible ways to read a Pasuk, Shayu Kulam Sarikim, since Chazal rolled Sarikim, when we accept them, Nish'an al-Amitam, Belisa Fik, Yadayim Chazakim. We will follow Chazal's interpretation in halachic matters. But Chalila, Chalila, Militarishim at Stukim. God forbid you should ever follow the Stukim. Where the Stukim? The Karaites is what he means. Stukim is an insult here. It's like saying, them, their heritage is just like those good-for-nothing good Stukim from Bayashini. The Karaites are there just like them. So, God forbid we should ever follow the, the Stukim, the Karaites, who interpret Stukim according to Pshat and Halakha. They think their tradition can contradict the Stukim and the Stukim. Hopefully, God will lead me in the footsteps of Chazal to explain the Torah according to the truth. So, Ibn Ezra, whom our Shah thought is so controversial, when it comes to Halacha, he says, In Halacha, we follow Chazal. Same thing in his other introduction. In the interest of time, I'm going to read a little bit of it and then skip. 
The fifth way, he had four ways that he rejected. But way number five, my way is going to be Explain all psukim according to their diktuk and shat, meaning against Chazal. That's the standard way I'm going to learn psukim. Rak when it comes to psukim of halacha, it's going to be reversed. My starting point is going to be chazal, and I'll try to show you how the diktuk of the words could be read in a way to support chazal. So instead of starting with the diktuk and saying the simple meaning of the pasuk is X, and if chazal interpreted differently, that's their problem, or they must be giving a different level of interpretation. When it comes to halacha, my starting point is chazal, and based on Chazal, I'll try to show how their words can fit the language of the text. Skip to the second to last line. However, when it comes to texts where there's no halacha, then I'll mention whatever peyushim are you know, worth mentioning from earlier or later. Afronim here doesn't mean what we call Afronim, because people that we call Afronim were all born after the Ibnazar was dead. But earlier and later commentaries. I'll fear God alone. I'm not going to cave in to anyone just because he was a big name rabbi. And that's what Marshall said. You know, I heard that Ibn Ezra said that he isn't going to be able to say Panim to anyone. I don't know. Marshall may not have had the Shita Acheret, so you might not have seen this inside, but he heard it correct. Ibn Ezra did say this. He's not going to give anybody a free pass. And in fact, the Rosadia Gaon in one place Ibn Ezra calls. Rosh HaMedabrim B'chol Makom, he heaps praise upon Rosh Gon. he's, you know, the founding and father of a serious Tanakh study. If he didn't like what Rosh Gon said somewhere, it didn't, he didn't cut Rosh Gon any slack. Ibn Janaf was a great grammarian, wrote an important work called Sefer HaShorashim, uh, and another work called Sefer HaRikmah, two important grammatical works. Ibn Ezra praises him at times, but Ibn Janaf had a, a way of reading certain psukim that seemed to Calling the question Moshe Rabbeinu's competence, and those psukim when he's quoted in Ibn Ezra, he's quoted as Hamishuga. It doesn't matter that elsewhere he's praised as a grammarian. And so Ibn Ezra really couldn't care less who you were. If you were wrong, you were wrong. And yet, when it comes to Halacha, he seems to be deferring completely to Chazal. Let's take a look at some examples of this. Start with the lighter ones. We start with Evidivri over here. I put mo- this long passage in Rashbam on the page, so if you have time, we may look at some of the earlier parts. For now, skip to the last line in Rashbam about Ebed Ivri here. It says that if an Ebed Ivri, who should have gone free after six years, wants to work for longer, you pierce his ear into the doorpost, Babadullah Allah, and then he works forever. What does forever mean according to Halacha? Not Yoba. Yoba, he goes free. Says the Rashbam, Le'olam, he works forever. Le'fiyabshat, kol yimei chayav. Simple meaning of this, it means Ebed Ivri works forever. No 50-year release, no Yovel, he works forever. And you want to know where else we see something like that? Chana dedicated Shmuel to work in the service of God, Ad Olam, and that meant Shmuel got a life sentence. He was made holy for his whole life to God. Shmuel didn't you know, lose his sanctity when he turned 50. How about even Ezra? Says Ibn Ezra, this is according from his long commentary, this is the one that you would see in most printed Fumashim. The Olam, we think of Olam as the world, meaning the whole world in terms of physical space, but it's used in Tanakh primarily as a measure of time. Not all the space in the world, but all the time in the world. Eternal time. 
And so the Olam, yeah, that's meant to be forever, right? But, Kohelet says something has always been. It's always been that way. Zmanim, in all times. Yashav Shem Arolam, the same Pasuk about Shmuel that Rashbam quoted. Rashbam said Shmuel was holy his whole life. He imagine says, you know what? Adzman Gadol. Shmuel only actually worked in the Mishkan and Shiloh there, so he grew up. And so, the Olam doesn't really mean Shmuel's going to be holy forever. He'll be a holy person forever because he was a prophet later. But Shmuel's <coughs> responsibility is to serve next to Eli HaKohen in the Mishkan. He grew out of that when he grew up. So too over here. What does it mean to work forever? This Manoshal Yovel. Yovel is the longest time, the longest finite time that we have in Halacha. We have days, weeks, months, years, seven year Shemitah cycles. Yovel is the longest time we can ever have. So the Olam means the slave has to work to some undefined time. Later, and you're going to see where this is, in Vekar Perachafei, in Parshat Bahar, we're told that Yovel frees slaves. So that's the Torah clarifying later that the finite time that seems like an eternity is Yovel, because Yovel is the longest time measurement that we have. You know, we see Yovel doing exactly what he said he would do. The starting assumption here is that evidently must go free at Yovel, because that's what the halacha is. He's trying to see, as a Pashtan, can I find basis in text for the idea that Olam could mean something other than forever, and therefore it defends the interpretation of Chazal that Olam means Yovel. Case number two is the laws of Shomrim. Right? There are four Shomrim in Halacha, Shomrachinam, Shomr Sachar, Socher, Shoel. Of those two are Shomrim, really. Right? A, a renter, a Socher, and a Shoel, a borrower, they're, they're not primarily assigned to guard something. They are borrowing or renting it, and while they're borrowing or rent, renting it, they have liabilities. But there are two people who in the Chumash are described as Shomrim, because I have them guard my object. If you look in the Sukkim here, Mishpatim, Kitani Shareya, Ketzaf or Kelim, Nishmar, Vugunatim, Betaish. So, I give someone Ketzaf or Kelim to guard, and if they were stolen, the person has to come before God, and, or before Betin, really. Bet says El Elohim here. Elohim here is actually not a shame Kodesh, it means judges, according to Halacha. So, they have to come before this Betin to be judged as to whether this Shomer was somehow negligent. And the Chumash continues, If I give someone my animals to watch, and they die, etc., there's a problem again, we have to come before Beitin to adjudicate. What's the main difference between these two types of Shomerim in terms of the Halacha? In the first case, we have to determine, If I did Shlichos Yad, if I somehow was negligent to the point where, say, I... You know, touch the object, use the object unfairly, some sort of high level of negligence on my part. Whereas in the second case, we want to know, also in who again, if there is negligence, but also the last line here, in the second case, I also have to pay if, it was, if the animal got stolen. Whereas in the first case, I didn't. So these are two types of shomrim, one of whom pays if the thing is stolen, and the other of whom apparently had less responsibility, and so he's not liable for the item getting stolen. So, who are these two categories in Halakha? The first one is called a Shomar Chinam. He, since you, I, I said, can you do me a favor? Can you watch my safer for me? Since you're doing me a favor, I'm not paying you. That's why you're only liable if you were grossly negligent. But not if the thief came, he was a professional burglar, and he somehow slipped it by you. 
I didn't, you know, without paying you, I couldn't have demanded you to guard for that. Whereas in the second case, I actually was paying you, so I, I paid you for better service. And so therefore, you're financially liable to, for the fact that it was stolen. I paid you to guard it against that. So, Rashbam here says, that's very nice for halacha, but wait a minute. He just tells you the halacha that I described. But, The first case, I gave you kesef o kelim, read the chumash. I gave you money, or metaltalin, I gave you my safer, my my water bottle to watch. These are things that, I expe- what do I expect you to do with them? You're going to put it, my safe, on your bookshelf with your other books. That's all you're going to do. And so when it gets stolen, you can say, look, I put it on my bookshelf. Some guy broke into my house. He stole some scarf from my shelf. And your safer was in my bookshelf. What do you want from me? When I gave you animals to watch, skip down to the second, the last full line of Rosh here. We all know that animals run free. So when I give you my dog to watch, did I give you my dog for you to put it in your backyard and let it run loose? Obviously not, because by definition, if I ask you to watch it, and we all know that if I put my dog in some neighbor's backyard, it's obviously going to r- run away from there. Obviously I gave you the dog for a higher level of shmira. You should, you know, chain the dog up somewhere, lock him somewhere where he can't get away easily. And since I, I obviously asked you, you Maybe I didn't pay you for it, and so you would have been a reasonable person if you would have said, I don't want that kind of liability without getting paid. But even if I didn't pay you, once you said, yes, I will guard your dog, knowing full well that dogs run away, you agreed to a higher level of shmir, a higher level of guarding. So the problem is explaining these two parshiot against the halacha. By contrast, Says Ibn Ezra, Kesavo Kelim Lishmor, Hu Shomer Chinam. Chazal said it's a Shomer Chinam, it's a Shomer Chinam. What about the second part of Shomer Sachar? Chamor Shor Yosef Chobim Elishmor. This Shomer Sachar. Again, Chazal said it's the guy who's getting paid to watch. That's what the Pasuk means. I, where are your linguistic hints for this? So again, Ibn Ezra is not some random guy, random guy who's just going to spew to you what he read in the Midrash says. He reads the Psukim. So he says, look closely. He's curious about Shomer You want to know why? Again, he agrees with Rashbam that Kesef and Kelim are easier to guard. That's why they're a good example of the type of thing you ask your friend to watch for free, because it's not a big deal for him. We'll just put them on his far- we'll put your safe on his bookshelf. And you know, the flip side of that would be that animals are a good example of the type of thing where you have to hire a guard, because which guy is going to agree to watch your animal stum when there's a lot of responsibility involved? But in fact, if a guy would agree to watch your animal without getting paid, he would be a Shomer because that's what the halacha is. The ha'ed, and the aid is, aid, 